Open your Bibles to the passage Matt just read, Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to ask a question. Why did you choose to gather here this morning? It's an odd question, right, for those who have gathered. But why did you choose to gather? If you were to just take a little piece of paper and write, this is why I showed up here this morning. Why? Because you can read Scripture on your own, in your pajamas, with your favorite drink, by a soft light, or in the solitude of your backyard. Sounds nice, right? You can listen to sermons while you run, drive to work, do lawn work. You can get all caught up, and you you actually have access to some of the best preaching worldwide. You can listen to the Spurgeon of Zambia, Conrad and Bayway. You can listen to other men who have gone viral. Pastor Matt and I have never gone viral. Okay, so, so why show up here? You can listen to and sing music at home or in your car. Every selection carefully chosen by you. You don't need to come here and subject yourself to a playlist, if you would, that you had no input over. And you can find relationships and social, social fulfillment in the community at ball fields, at concerts, at restaurants, at shows. So why come here where you really can't even be as selective about who you let into your life? And we all know it's much easier to pray alone, so why gather? Do you have an answer for that? And the the simplest answer I could come up with is when you open the New Testament including the book of Revelation, what becomes clear is that this is how God designed it to be. The the gathered church, those called out, ecclesia, those called out to Christ, gather in His name. It's His idea. It's His design. There's something about this right here in a local assembly that makes Him big, that glorifies Him. And there's something that's happening here also on a horizontal level as we are accountable to one another, as we edify one another, as we find joy in serving one another. Something of great importance happens when the church gathers together. But the second thing is God has placed us on mission together. We're not lone rangers. We're not maverick entrepreneurs. We're not single solo missionary entities taking on the gates of hell. God has called the church on mission together. So gathering is not enough. Getting a sermon and showing up for a time slot is not obeying the great commission. So there's something special that happens when we gather together and there's something unstoppable when we scatter together during the week. Which brings us to the third church. It's interesting. You get into Revelation and you're immediately confronted with an accurate picture of who Jesus Christ is. And it's staggering. But all of a sudden, the first thing in Revelation isn't all the apocalyptic pictures. It's seven messages to seven churches. People that are gathering. People, believers that are gathering in Ephesus who were doctrinally sound, and they were testing people who said, I'm an apostle, but they're not. And Jesus says, well done for putting them out of the church. But I have this against you. You have a rigid, cold, mechanical orthodoxy. 
And he calls them to repent. Listen to that. He calls the church to repent, believers to repent. Then you travel north a little bit, also on the Aegean Sea, and you find a suffering church in Smyrna. Insignificant, seemingly small. This is not an attractional ministry at all. But they still gather even in the face of death. They still come to gather, get together and gather in his name even in the face of death. And Jesus says, well done. Now you travel about 40 to 50 miles north and 10 miles inland and you come to a third church. And that is the church at Pergamum, a church dwelling in the tall shadow of pagan darkness. Pergamum had an acropolis, which is a citadel or a fortress that sat up on a hill. And part of that fortress was a huge temple to Zeus. And from a distance, the traveler could look at it. And some have said this is where the idea of Satan's throne comes in because it looked like up on this fortress, there was this huge throne. The message to Pergamum is a message encouraging church discipline, church purity, A biblical separation from false teaching resulting in false living. It's a hard message. When Jesus walks amidst the churches, when we get a first century snapshot of seven churches, what we find out as a church, as a local church here in South Denver, is what pleases Jesus Christ and what displeases him. What he commends and what he rebukes. What we see here is confrontation of a compromised testimony. If I were to put it in sort of an action phrase, this is what the Church of Pergamum teaches us. As a church, we must deal with compromise or compromise will subtly and surely conquer us. So let's look at this. Believers in Pergamum were faithful for standing against the external enemies. But they weren't doing so well against another more subtle enemy, and Satan had infiltrated inside the church. So, if this was a letter to Highlands, Jesus would come in, he said, you're doing great with the external enemies. But I have a concern, somehow something is infiltrated right in here, inside the church. This is the message to Pergamum. Satan had infiltrated the church with people who were living lives that contradicted the gospel. And the church had to take responsibility for it because they tolerated it. Now, for some of us coming out of, I know a lot of us here come out of a, in some ways, a hyper-separatist, rigid background where we like, yeah, that was like the Ephesian church. And so any thought then, there's an overreaction, that pendulum swing swinging too far, where now... Uh, we can actually become passive and laid back and become tolerant. And so the, the church of Pergamum is actually a balance to that over-pendulum swing where Jesus comes in and he says, no, you're doing well, you're being faithful, but now I'm going to call you to deal with the compromise that exists within the church. Churches like Pergamum are not initially destroyed by false doctrine. They are destroyed by a toleration of false living. When a professing believer is allowed to continue in sin without gracious confrontation and be treated as a member who obeys Christ, it confuses the gospel. It confuses the gospel to our children. It confuses the gospel to young believers. 
And it confuses the gospel to a world who is looking for hope. We're going to follow the same outline structure that we did in the first two churches. And as we move into this, here's one of the big ideas. If a church doesn't address the issue of false living in their midst, sooner or later the door will be opened to false doctrine. The introduction, right? This is the big I, the the capital I with the dot. Introduction. We're going to fill out this outline again. Look at chapter 2, Revelation, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, a real church in a real geographical location. Write this. This is what the exalted Christ has to say to this local body of believers. The church in Pergamum. Some interesting facts about Pergamum. It had a library of 200,000 volumes. I find that interesting. I I love books. We have books all around our house. And it was only rivaled by Alexandria and I believe Athens. And they tried to actually take a librarian from Alexandria to come in and build up this library in Pergamum so that it stood out not just as um, a place for emperor worship, but as a place for intellectual pursuit. Again, we already talked about the impressive altar to Zeus and also a very large temple of the imperial cult. Like Smyrna, we talked about this last week, they were given permission to build a statue To a living Roman emperor in AD 29, Augustus allowed a temple to be built and dedicated to his honor and worship. Pergamum was known for worshiping the emperor. The majority of the church remained faithful despite the death of a martyr. His name was Antipas. We read that this morning. It is the only personal name used for a casualty in all seven messages. Though Smyrna was about to add to that list, if you remember that from last week. Some, however, had wavered wavered and are now eating food sacrificed to idols and are involving in the baser aspects of cult, pagan, emperor worship. And it's probably to avoid the fate of Antipas. Okay, so under this introduction, now remember what we see in every letter, there's a repeat of what? So you have the address, write this to the, to the church in Pergamum, and then what's the first thing you're confronted with? It's not the strengths, it's not the weaknesses, it is a reminder, it is an aspect of the character of who? The character of Christ. And remember, no true, lasting, healthy church change can happen without first having a true and accurate picture of who Jesus Christ is. And Revelation really turns it right side up, if you would. I mean, you have this you know, super tolerant, inclusivist, flip-flop wearing, Jesus my buddy on the coast of Galilee, Galilee picture. And that's not what you get in Revelation. It's not really what you get in the Gospels either. But Revelation sort of brings it into a narrowed focus on this is an exalted king. And this is the shortest and the simplest description of the character of Christ. But look at the latter part of verse 12. Write this to the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The image of the sword may allude to the Roman government's eus gladii, which means the right to execute capital punishment. Now you have a picture of Jesus Christ. 
this large, there's different words in Greek for the sword. And again, this goes back to the the vision in chapter 1, where this is a longer Thracian broadsword that was often used in cavalry attacks. And it's a huge sword. And the picture is Jesus is coming with authoritative, precise, and accurate judgment. This two-edged sword, picture of a divine warrior. And here's here's the reminder to the Christians that Jesus, not the governor, holds the power of life and death. And that's important when the church dwells where it dwells. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 16, the phrase is used, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This is a picture that anyone living under Rome's government, Rome's iron fist would understand because that sword means swift justice. Now Jesus takes that picture, something that the citizens would understand, and here comes the exalted, the risen Christ with a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth, his words of authority, of swift justice. Isaiah 11 forces this of the Messiah. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Speaking of Jesus Christ. We move into the body of the letter. And this is where the exalted Christ looks at strengths and or weaknesses. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And again, this common phrase, right? I know. Here's the all-knowing, exalted Jesus Christ who walks amidst the church and he knows everything. He knows everything about us this morning. He walks amidst this lampstand and he knows He knows me. He knows you. This is what he knows about Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And he says this again, where Satan dwells. The exalted Christ knows three things. Can you pick them out? The exalted Christ knows three things about the church gathering in the shadow of pagan darkness. First of all, he knows where they dwell, right? He knows the hostile pagan world in which they live. Secondly, he knows their faithful witness. And the third thing is actually a description or a further clarification of the second thing he knows. He knows their endurance under persecution. And you could feel that. Um, This is a foreign concept to us right now, for which we can be thankful for. But what if one of our leading members here was martyred? You just put a name to it. Martyred because they gathered. Martyred because they they stood against pagan pluralism. Martyred because they wouldn't bow down and call Caesar Lord And then you gather again. And there is a temptation now to accommodate to a secular culture to avoid the fate of that person you knew. Because you're gathering in the same location. You're gathering where he or she gathered. And you know that there is a warning from the emperor that if all who do not bow down and worship will be killed. Just trying to create something for us because it is such a foreign concept, even on an emotional level, 
where we, we read this and we're like, good for Pergamum, good for standing fast. No, they stood fast even when one of their own was martyred. First of all, God knows where they reside. I know where you dwell. They're not tourists here. This is where they're raising their children. They are advancing the gospel in one of the most difficult places in the world. As a matter of fact, the exalted Christ is going to say this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's an interesting description. What does that mean? It sounds like it means there is a base of operation and a very real and unusual presence of Satan in that location. Which is possible because Satan is not omnipresent. He's not present everywhere The other thought is that because the emperor worship, the cult of emperor worship, is permeating every part of the culture, that Satan is ruling there through Roman governors and officials. His throne, his reign, that's what the idea of a a throne means. It's a seat of influence. The imperial cult, the major problem behind Revelation as a whole, was the core of Pergamum religion. It was the center of the imperial cult for all the province of Asia. It was the throne. It was the seat of false worship. And Satan's throne is probably a reference to the fact that persecution is coming from the emperor and his representatives. It would have been under Trajan and Domitian where the occurrence of Christian persecution was brought forth upon God's people. And in some ways, if you, if you think about the persecutions underneath uh, Domitian and Trajan, it's almost like the, the proverbial curtain is pulled back. And behind, you know, behind the great Oz, you see actually who is causing things. And this time it's sort of inverted because when you pull the curtain back, it's not really Domitian and Trajan, it's Satan. This is what the Apostle Paul actually writes in Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That would include Roman emperors. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that's what Paul does. He pulls the curtain back and he says, see, this is what you're going up against. Satanic reign satanic influence. Even today, some places are marked by a moral darkness evidencing Satan's influence and reign. Las Vegas. Hollywood. Amsterdam. Berlin. Some places are known by their trafficking of women and children evidencing Satan's reign. The three that top the list, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. Some places are defined by an oppressive spiritual darkness. Nepal's Tibetan Buddhists. Pakistan's and Sudan's radical Islam. And North Korea's ranking as most violent religious persecutor. And some in our church may be sent into areas like this to dwell And here's the encouragement. Jesus says, I know where you reside. I know where you're gathering. I know that you're gathering in the shadow of pagan darkness and violence. And you're standing firm. And I commend you for that. 
See, secondly, God not only knows where they dwell, He knows their faithfulness, yet you hold fast my name. That means to grasp forcibly. When it's popular to reject Christ's name or it's popular to accommodate to emperor worship, no, this church, from an external perspective, they are grasping forcibly onto their identity in Christ. They are called out. They are distinct. And they're holding firm to that. They're not wavering. They're living up to their new identity when it's neither popular nor easy. And they're not giving up to pagan opposition entering into worldly enticement. We've already touched on this, but their faithfulness is described further. The exalted Christ knows their endurance under persecution. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus knows their situation. He knows the difficulty. He knows the opposition. Faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5, that is used of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The idea here is that this person was faithful to the name of Christ even when the highest cost would be paid. And again, that clarifier where Satan dwells. There's an established satanic presence in Pergamum. In direct terms, this church lived in Satan's hometown. Right? We understand kind of what that communicates. But out of all of the strengths, unlike Smyrna, who has no weaknesses, or at least nothing's highlighted because they're suffering, they're being sanctified through that suffering, Jesus comes along and look at chapter 2, verse 14. He says this, But I have a few things against you. And folks, we should take comfort that Jesus, even when he commends and affirms, he doesn't hold back correction. He doesn't just affirm, he confronts. So he says, you're doing this and this and this, well done, but I have a few things against you. You have, and I want you to note this term. I mean, if you're a Bible marker, just kind of underline it where it says it two times. You have some there inside. When you gather in the shadow of darkness and you are standing firm against external opposition, you have some inside who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Look at verse 15. So also you have, there's that phrase again, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Two groups, one group, is one an offshoot of the other? Is the emphasis a little different? All we know is that there are some inside called the church who are compromising the purity of the gospel by the way they're living. Something is creeping in that will eventually destroy the church. So remember what the Ephesian church was commended for? They were commended for, rightly, testing apostles and doing away with the Nicolaitan heresy. But the church at Pergamum is now not commended for that, but corrected or confronted for tolerating it. The problem, the danger, is not external but internal. You have some there, some in your midst. We would use the term some in your membership. 
that are living contrary to the gospel they profess. And this is why, as I was thinking through the applications of this in our, in our present day, a clear doctrinal statement of core doctrines is essential for, for the purity of the gospel here. For instance, you cannot join Highlands Baptist Church if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ. You cannot join Highlands Baptist Church if you are an inclusivist, if you believe all the ways will eventually get a person to heaven even though there's one really true, pure way. Everybody else in the end, because of God's grace, is going to be just fine. You cannot join Highlands if you're an inclusivist. You cannot join Highlands if you add or subtract anything to the Gospel. Because the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1, even, even if an apostle, which he includes himself, or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, let him be what? That's a strong term. It's only used two times in the New Testament. And in both cases, it's used when somebody's tampering with the gospel. Let him be accursed. It's why membership has to matter here, because it matters to Christ. Notice the words, teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to, teaching of the Nicolaitans. But what's interesting is even though you have three words that, that sort of focus in on teaching, the matter really isn't doctrine, it's actually lifestyle. It's actually because they embraced some kind of teaching, it's affecting their conduct. Content matters because it leads to conduct. Doctrine divides truth from error in belief and practice. So what is the character of this? Why bring up Balaam? Balaam's an Old Testament figure. He was a prophet. The king, Balak, goes to consult with Balaam, and he tries to get him to curse the Israelites, if you remember the story. And every time he goes up and he agrees, of course, Balaam's heart is greedy for money, and he's going to be paid well for cursing the Israelites. And every time he goes to curse them, what happens? He just can't do it. Almost seemingly against his own will. And instead of coming out a curse, because he can cash in on a curse, out comes a blessing. And it frustrates the king. But Balaam's not innocent. Balaam actually goes to the women and tells them how to undermine the Israelites. In Numbers 22 to 24, you'll see him only uttering blessings, but three chapters later, Numbers 25, 1 to 3, shows the devastating results of his counsel. Listen to this. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And a few chapters later in Numbers 31, verse 16, Moses holds Balaam accountable. Moses said, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. That's the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam is coming in and devising a sabotage of God's people so that now they don't just build relationships with foreigners, but they're actually worshiping foreign false gods. 
In chapter Revelation 2.14, the middle part, who taught Balak. He actually instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What is a stumbling block? So I've heard this term misused a lot. Right? This isn't talking about preferences. Right? If I get into your car and you, know, you turn on heavier music, you know, if, and if it's, if, it's, if it's not evil in content, you know, I could say, hey, could you turn that off? That's a stumbling block to me. But, but, but it's not causing me to fall away from Christ. It's not causing me to want to go and actually sin in my conscience. It's just I don't like it. That's the wrong use of the word stumbling block. Stumbling block is something you trip over. It is used of Jesus Christ in the New Testament for the Jews. They tripped over him. They couldn't get the fact that he was the Messiah. In other areas, a stumbling block is I'm actually doing something or you're actually doing something to cause me to sin. Not to cause me to just not like it. You're actually wooing me to sin and to fall away from Jesus Christ. And that is exactly how it's used here. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. This is the stumbling block. Hey, if you get your women to entice the Israelite men before they go into the promised land, you will undermine them. They'll actually start worshiping your gods. They'll enter in full-blown idolatry. That, that's a cause for sin. That is an offense. It's a stumbling block. Matthew 18.7 says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The two areas highlighted in the message to this church are idolatry and immorality. And that's exactly what Balaam had designed to trip up the children of Israel. And these are best understood not just in like personal, personal practice, but most likely in reference to this church and in the city it lived, that the teaching in some way encouraged participation in the imperial cult, which led them in entering into the practice of idolatry by eating the food and entering into some kind of a temple prostitution. And it is condemned as Jesus walks among that church, and most likely they have done this, yes, because their hearts are sinful, but also to avoid, to accommodate Rome and avoid what Antipas faced. Can I ask you this? Did the church have a responsibility to the people inside? In Corinthians, God says, he will judge the people outside. But he expects the church to judge people inside. So did the church at Pergamum have a responsibility to deal with these people? Look at chapter 2, verse 16. For those tempted to accommodate and compromise, for those tolerant of pluralism and idolatry and immorality, the solution is this. Therefore, what's the next word? Repent. Therefore, turn. Therefore, change. To a church that is tolerating this, repent. Does that feel heavy <laughs> for a Sunday morning in July? It is. 
And here's the warning. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. Present tense. I will come. An imminent intervention and a future tense and will war against them. A future battle indicating the nature of Christ's coming judgment. And then he's going to call us to listen. This is the, the conclusion to this letter in Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To hear is to obey. And the call is to us. For us to do the judgment now. Graciously, yes. Every word seasoned with grace, yes. Speaking the truth in love, yes. But speaking the truth. We talk a lot about intimacy of relationships and transparency and smaller groups and we want we seem to invite that but as soon as somebody sort of presses down on that heart idol how do we respond in the church and we have a responsibility to press in where accommodation has been had where there is a professor of the gospel whose life is totally contrary to what he professes. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who do so, those who obey, those who, hey, you have some there who are holding this. Now deal with it. That's obedience. Deal with this. And those who do so are conquerors, overcomers. They will conquer through their obedience to Christ when it's unpopular. I can guarantee you this. If you obey this, you will not be the most popular person in church. No matter how loving and careful you are, if you say, hey, you profess the gospel, which is a true reflection of God's holiness and love, but your life, your life doesn't reflect that. I mean, just by way of observation, you habitually are doing this and this. And as your brother or as your sister in Christ I'm appealing to you, turn. It's what Titus says, that a divisive person, after warning him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. And that sounds so rude and cold, doesn't it? But it protects the gospel. It keeps the gospel pure and accurate to our children and to a watching world. Done in love, yes, but done We are given a choice. We deal with it and are rewarded or Christ comes and He deals with it. But it will be dealt with. Now, those who are victorious are promised two divine gifts. Let's look at this. Chapter 2, verse 17, the latter part. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who who receives it. These are both very difficult to interpret. Right? The Jewish tradition mentioned in Hebrews, uh, where inside the Ark of the Covenant are three things, right? The tablets of the law, a bowl of manna, and Aaron's rod that is budding. Okay, scripture makes reference to that. Um, is that what it's referring to? Seems to fit. But it's talking about a future time, probably most likely the messianic feast and the eternal kingdom. And remember what he also said. He already talked about food in this short message to Pergamon. What did he say? There are some among you who are eating food, 
sacrifice to idols. Now listen, I want you to obey. I want you to remain pure. And there is a heavenly food, a heavenly sustenance that I will give to you that will be unlike anything else. So yield to Christ. Kill your fleshly desires and yield to Christ. And there is a better food waiting for you. And to believe that is going to take faith. What about the white stone? If we look at this in the context of Christ's return, a messianic feast with the hidden manna, it seems best to take the white stone as a tessera that served as a token for admission into a banquet. It's one of the, there's about 12 different, by the way, interpretations. White and dark stones were also used to cast votes. They would throw them in an urn to either acquit or call guilty. And so there could be this idea of a white stone. You've been acquitted. You have been justified, but also connected to the entrance into the feast based upon Christ's grace. Perhaps it's a mix of ideas involved. The new name is not given much explanation, but Isaiah says this in Isaiah 62, verse 2, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. There's this access to something and intimacy that there is a name on there that only you'll know. There's a closeness. And right, go back to Revelation 1. He's walking amidst the church. He's here. He knows you. He knows where you dwell. He knows the opposition. And he wants to encourage you towards faithfulness to being a conqueror by believing. And I will give you this name this stone that no one knows except the one who receives it with that new name written on it. So how do, we, how do we process this? How do we move forward? Well, some churches like the church in Ephesus do the right things, but without love for God and others, and that displeases Christ. Some churches like the church in Smyrna are suffering and are faithful in the face of death and are about to die, and that pleases Christ. Other churches like the church in Pergamum have been faithful but are beginning to erode through internal compromise. And Jesus calls the church in Ephesus loveless orthodoxy and the church in Pergamum internal compromise. Repent. Because this is Christ's bride. This is his idea. And he wants it to reflect something accurate. The love of God and the holiness of God. So the real lesson of Pergamum for us today is this. It's not what we teach or believe that will ultimately destroy us, but what we tolerate in our lives and in our midst. Because we can have right doctrine and wrong practice. Like Balaam, we can excuse worldly appetites, greedy for gain, by attributing them to God. Have you ever seen anybody do this? Where they, oh, no, no. God says, if you have enough faith, I mean, He's going to prosper you with millions During the Civil Rights Movement, the Bible and Christianity were exploited by Ku Klux Klan leader Sam Bowers to justify violent Klan activity. He used Christianity and the Scriptures to do so. Popular pastor Douglas Hudgens used Scripture to ignore the segregation and violence being executed even from members in his own church. And he provided them safe haven by using Scripture out of context. 
By contrast, the civil rights also revealed Christians committed to stand against the values of a culture. And folks, that culture was satanically influenced. Black activist Fannie Lou Hamer both forgave her white persecutors and stood for justice in Jesus' name. And white Mississippian Ed King shared in the suffering of his black colleagues because he said this, if a person calls himself a Christian, he must give up everything and follow Christ. In the midst of a pervasively dark, satanic culture. The church at Pergamum can be compared to the church today as it faces the pressures of a secular world. Here's the warning. Compromise is subtle. Compromise is always a departure in conduct based on wrong teaching. And compromise may start in poor conduct, but always ends in a perversion of truth, a distortion of the picture of the gospel. Therefore, Jesus says, Highlands. By extension through Pergamum, you have a responsibility because you have some there. Now, that sounds like I know, like some are here. I don't know that. But we are being alerted by God through this series to say, if there is that contradiction of profession of the gospel, but a life that denies it and distorts it and dirties it, we have a responsibility to Christ first, to this church into that individual. A church must deal with and conquer compromise or compromise will subtly and surely conquer us. Let me close with one quote from Jonathan Lehman. God calls the church to draw boundaries. Boundaries which mark off these people from those people. Boundaries which prevent some individuals from joining while excluding other individuals after they have joined Not only that, God intends that the church use these boundary markers in order to help define for the world what exactly God's love is. And so far as the gospel presents the world with the most vivid picture of God's love, and in so far as church membership and discipline are an implication of the gospel, local church membership and discipline, in fact, define God's love for the world. And that is what the message to the church in Pergamum teaches us.